0: You're listening to the MEX Podcast, where we explore user behavior, emerging technologies, and how to design better digital experiences.
1: Sometimes the ways of excluding has to do with just what you call something. If you call something craft rather than design, it tends to be very gendered towards female. Or if you look at practices of indigenous groups in um, various places around the world and, and sort of you demote it as maybe a, a non-modern practice, there are lots of ways that the language that we use to talk about the field of design implicitly excludes certain kinds of work.
0: Hello, I'm Marek Pawwoski, founder of MEX, and that clip that you just heard was Laura Folano, my guest on the show today. She's Associate Professor at IIT Institute of Design in Chicago, and she was talking there about... The importance of language in design, how it can be used in different ways, sometimes very positive ways, but in this context, in potentially negative ways to set a context around design, which excludes the very constituents that it's intended to serve. Now, I want to tell you a bit more about Laura and our conversation and how she came to be on the podcast and all the things that she's involved with but what else has been going on in the world of the mechs community so i'm back from London yesterday, where we hosted another of our mix dining club events. So this was actually the tenth one that we've done in the the current series. Um, Interestingly, actually, the first one we did um, back in November twenty seventeen was in New York, which was uh, where I caught up with Laura and we first mooted the idea of her coming on the podcast and talking about some of the different projects that she's been involved with. But the gathering we had in London yesterday was uh, great get together a um, real interesting mix of people who had never been to a Mex event before but have been introduced by others who have been along to some of the dinners so there were plenty of new faces there probably about half and half with people who have been along to the dinners or to the, the conferences or have been guests on the podcast who it's always great to catch up with and instead of having a discussion theme like we usually do we had a bit of a challenge this time uh, the challenge was that you had to bring with you an object which represented either good design, or bad design. Or if you are feeling particularly enthusiastic, then you could bring along one of each and bring some cosmic balance to the universe. And it's just fascinating to see what people brought along with them. You know, everything from different uh, models and toys through to digital devices. Uh, And it really got the conversation going. And one of the things which struck me about a number of the objects was that depending on your interpretation or depending on which particular side of of view point you were looking at it from, often these objects could represent both. You know, in some ways, um, they could be good design. Uh, in others, they had elements which were not so good, depending on who it was they were intended for and whether or not you are part of that group, which I guess kind of brings one back to the idea of, is there universally good design or is there simply design which is suited to the needs of a particular group of people who are going to be the target audience for that? product. But anyway, it led some great conversations and we had a, a fun evening in London. We've got another one coming up. That one is going to be on the 15th of May. Uh, and as always, everyone is welcome. If you would like an invitation to come along and meet some of the people who listen to the show and have been involved in the MEX community over the years, then just drop me an email. It is talk. At mobileuserexperience.com, and I can make sure you're on the list, and we'll send you all the details for how to get involved in that. So let's talk a little bit more about the interview and the the conversation that I had with Laura Falano. You know, it was a discussion which made me think a little bit about how, in any group of people, there's always uh, those who seek to enhance the identity of that group, whether it's a, a company or, or a group of friends, by looking inwards. You know, they, they seek to stay aligned around a particular preset method of practice or a particular group of, of members. And then there are those like Laura, who seem to look naturally outward from whatever group they're involved with. They seek to build bridges between different disciplines and different groups and bring in new opinions and introduce new people into the mix. It's something you come across in all areas of life, you know, not just within the world of design and digital. I think that that's true of almost any gathering of people that you see. Uh, and those kind of bridge building people often make for some very refreshing and, and interesting conversations. And it kind of exposed me to a bunch of, of new ideas, uh, new concepts, new products, new initiatives, which I probably wouldn't otherwise have come across. So I, I was very glad to have the opportunity to talk to Laura About all that kind of stuff. Uh, Her own work um, is diverse. She teaches at the IIT Institute of Design in Chicago. Uh, She also is a writer um, and is currently working on a book about the Bauhaus uh, and some of the um, futures which might have been imagined today by people who were involved with the Bauhaus. She's a visiting research fellow with the Digital Life Initiative at Cornell. Uh, She's also a faculty associate at the Berkman Klein Center for Internet and Society at Harvard. Really a a diverse range of roles, but all around, I guess, a, a core uh, driving force for, for Laura, which is to sit at that intersection between what's happening in social sciences and what's happening in technology and to ask the big questions about what technology is going to mean for people in the future. And she does that through her teaching. She does that through her writing work. She does that through her her research. So it's wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to Laura. She's someone that I've known for a long time, having first met her in New York, probably a decade plus ago. Uh, and we had the chance to catch up more recently when we did one of our dining club events in New York in November, 2017. And one way or another, the conversation continued. And anyway, here we, we found ourselves having this discussion and recorded it a few weeks ago. Um, so I hope you enjoy the interview. And I'll be back at the end with a little bit more about what's been going on in the world of mechs. But for now, enjoy the conversation with Laura Folano. <music> Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join me today. Now, one of the things that I wanted to ask you was whenever you and I have a chance to catch up, I'm always impressed by the range of things that you seem to be involved with at any given time. But is there a sort of specific thread that you yourself can identify about what guides your work with the different organizations that you work with?
1: So a lot of my work over the past 10 years has really been one of uh bridging different academic communities and design communities and so i would say that you know the real the thread through a lot of the projects that i've worked on have been about translating design approaches and design methods into the social sciences, and in particular, into the field of science and technology studies and the field of communications and media studies, and translating theory and criticism and ideas and concepts from the social sciences into the field of design. So that's really guided my work. And, you know, generally, the kinds of things I've been working on have been around emerging technologies of various kinds from autonomous vehicles, to uh, network medical devices and computational fashion. Um, I've taken lots of opportunities to work on different topics because it allows me to understand better how the boundaries between human and machine are being drawn um, in, in emerging technology.
0: So I guess maybe we need to go back a little bit even. I mean, was that always the goal when you started down this path to aim specifically at, at bridging that gap between social sciences and what was happening with emerging technologies? Technology, or was that something which kind of emerged for you as an idea as you went through your studies?
1: Yeah, I would say that in a sense, when I was, you know, when I was doing my doctorate, I was very much involved as almost more of an activist role, participating in the development of community-owned infrastructures, building Wi-Fi networks in a you know very technical communities, and also trying to understand the the ways in which people were using those kinds of networks. So in particular, the emergence of kind of mobile work practices where people were hanging out in cafes and parks and public spaces and, um, you know, seeing that as a new place, you know, a new kind of workplace. Um, And I think what one of the things that led me down this path was actually after that project, um, I ended up working on a collaborative project with the Architecture League of New York, and that project resulted in an exhibition. And uh, as part of the project, we organized lots of different interventions and activities in the city, um, you know, hosting sessions in public parks and having brainstormings. And uh, it was, you know, a way to begin to understand that you could work on a lot of the same topics that you could study academically, but in a more um, inventive and engaging way. And and so I gravitated towards um, the design field where there's a lot more opportunity and flexibility and permission to do those kind of interventions um, than there are in some of the more traditional um, social science departments.
0: I mean, that's that's a really interesting reflection, I guess, on a time which, I mean, perhaps for some of our, our younger listeners to the podcast um, who have always had that opportunity to go and work mobile using Wi-Fi networks in a very distributed way. That, you know, it wasn't always so. And thinking back, I think that was actually how you and I first got in touch was when you were doing that project in New York around the, the Wi-Fi networks and the role that they were having. But interesting mm-hmm. that it was something which started to, spark the attention of of architects and that they realize the significance of how that might influence the way people would then work within particular built spaces. That's right.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, just to quote uh, a pretty well-known article by Bruno Latour from 2004, he, he says, you know, at the, 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 the time, uh, he's, he's criticizing the ways in which some of the traditional fields have, have approached their work. And he says, you know, the critic is not the one who debunks, but the one who assembles. So that really was a turning point also in the social sciences, which there was a very large exhibition organized called Making Things Public, and it was, you know, one of the first times that I can recall where you could see people, um, you know, creating uh, pieces for exhibitions and starting to have permission to work in different ways. And I've started to think about this as kind of the, the inventive turn, um, you know, in academia, we have all of these kind of turning points where groups of people kind of change direction. And I, I see that as, you know, one of the historical precedents for this kind of intersection between uh, design and... And you could say... some of the traditional social science
0: fields. Is that something which, yeah, thinking back to that time, you saw things specific to particular cities about how it evolved? Or or do you think that became something which was quite generic and global uh, across the US, for instance? Because I know you've spent time working uh, in New York and working in Chicago and other places on on these kind of projects. You know, was it distinct in certain communities? Or did it become a pattern which played out across the country? I
1: mean, Thinking specifically about the the community wireless uh, activities, like those were international and national groups working in their local communities building infrastructures. And that was very much, I would say, a a part of the broader open source software movement. Um, Many of the people that were involved were also, you know, writing code or or involved in other ways. And so I think that the the sort of activist efforts and the, the local community infrastructure building as an intervention, um, you know, was a fairly international effort. And, you know, there were actually a number of conferences early on where people got together to to share ideas about how to sustain those those, um, interventions in their communities. And thinking about it from today, while some of those groups are still very active, others have kind of faded away. So as the commercial operators um, and sort of tech companies were offering fairly reasonably priced broadband services, then there was of a need in some sense for these community-based efforts, although the design of the systems, of course, was was very different um, depending on the local community and also uh, very much influenced by the sort of open source software values and norms. Yeah, I
0: mean, I guess even if the technology itself didn't uh, end up having perhaps the significance that it was once thought that it was going to, those models, those, those ways of working are something which possibly went on to have an outsize effect on other areas of technology and a way of doing things in that more decentralized way where communities could own their own networks, operate their own networks. Uh, That feels like something which has continued to live on.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, I think what's really interesting is that a lot of the same questions that these organizations were grappling with in early on in two thousand. 2005, um, are some of the same questions that we're asking today about algorithmic systems. Of course, you know, they're very different kinds of technologies, but a lot of my work has been about helping designers improve their ability to understand the politics of technology and also the politics of design.
0: We hear a lot these days about the power of algorithms and the significance of algorithms in terms of how they're going to shape the technology that becomes part of lives in the future. But for you, you know, doing the work that you're doing, where are you seeing that significance or the most significant questions are starting to emerge at the moment about the role of those algorithms?
1: On the one hand, you could say that algorithms are just one example of what you might call a socio-technical imaginary. So it's something that that essentially businesses government scholars everyone has a as a whole has kind of embraced this idea that that out al- perhaps algorithms are an emerging technology where there's a huge amount of investment that there are potential opportunities and there are risks um, and so this narrative is very common and I think on some to some extent the there's been a overwhelming focus on on some of these kinds of technologies um, and to a great extent what we really need to be thinking about is really the deeper social and political problems that we have as a society and how, and how we can fix those problems, because technologies are just a reflection of the, the values of society. So it makes sense then that a lot of recent studies are finding that algorithms have certain biases related to race or related to gender, right? Because they're just mimicking the types of data set that they're fed and the types of societal issues that we still have. So in some sense, it would make it would be wise to actually try to fix the underlying social Cultural and political and economic problems rather than focusing so much on algorithms. On the other hand, these technologies and and the sort of creation of them can be a way of working through some of these questions.
0: Yeah, perhaps in some ways it provides almost a, a mirror that you can hold up to some of those societal problems because you say that these algorithms have to come from somewhere and therefore they are likely to reflect the biases of those who are involved in their creation. And perhaps. At that moment in time, it gives an opportunity for for reflection because people start to see the picture which has remained hidden or, or unspoken.
1: Yeah, I think that's very much the case. In the last several years, at least here in in the United States, I think there has been a, a, a greater understanding of the the deep structural inequalities and racism that we've been living with for for decades or, or for our entire history, perhaps. But it's only becoming more visible to us now. Or you could say that people who've been experiencing these things on a day-to-day basis, you know, have a, a, a much sharper view of, of, you know, sort of what kind of country we live in or what kind of politics um, are existing. But for, for many people, these things were not very visible. So they w- certainly weren't front page news. Um, and now we're just seeing, you know, a lot of these stories are actually becoming more and more prevalent. And there's a wider recognition that people have vastly different experiences experiences. experiences depending on, you know, race, class, gender, disability, uh, sexuality, and these kinds of things. So
0: in your teaching work, how do you talk to your students about the role of these uh, algorithms in the future and what, you know, as aspiring designers of, of some kind or people who want to play a role in some way in, in shaping the future, what sort of things they need to be considering, um, you know, both good and bad about um, how they, they might work in a future which is going to contain systems that rely on, on algorithms?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um I try to introduce, you know, a critical approach that's very much informed by critical theory from the social sciences with a generative design approach. So it's a really that intersection which makes it exciting. So on the one hand, there's some really interesting opportunities um, in some of my classes on principles and methods of user research. We have looked at the ways in which algorithms could be potentially a research collaborator. So, for example, an individual design researcher might interview one person, say, in a distributed, using, a, you know, say, a via Skype like a remote interview setting and there's some articles that have come out talking about how some of these qualitative social science methods could actually be automated using algorithms and that would allow you to potentially interview 20 people or 100 people at a time. So on the one hand I think that's really interesting because it's about working across the quantitative and the qualitative design methods or research methods and it might up- allow qualitative researchers to Gain, you know, more more data. For example, um, on the other hand, of course, we also want to be really critical of the ways that those types of technologies might be deployed. So it could be that a company decides to use that type of a technology and then, you know, fires 80% of their design researchers. So, so I think that it's really important to see the both the potential benefits and what might be interesting about thinking about your research questions in a way that they could be essentially conducted by an algorithmic system. On the other other hand, you know, looking at the labor implications and other aspects. Um, another thing that we we haven't done quite yet, but there's been some interesting books that have come out recently from the O'Reilly um, publishers talking about, you know, how do you design bots and how do you design different kinds of technologies? So that's another exercise that, you know, is really helpful to think through how might you go about designing some of these things. And I think where, where design schools and art schools and, and uh, computer science programs, and information programs are, I think, where there's a gap is basically that that no individual school really has the widest range of approaches. Typically, you know, art schools are are maybe more focused on um, speculative and imaginative and kind of futures-oriented kinds of design. So something like Royal College of Art, um, whereas uh, the Institute of Design at IIT has been much more rooted in the social science tradition, um, and we we don't necessarily have the The same kinds of capabilities that a computer science program might have, but a computer science program also wouldn't have the ability to really do the qualitative social science research or the imaginative research in the same way an art program would. So I think what's what's interesting is how can you work across those different kinds of traditions um, in order to answer a question um, like the one that you just posed.
0: I mean, is that one of the things which drives you to try to collaborate with a wide range of different institutions in, in different ways? Because of that need you've identified to be able to sort of dip into the best parts of of, of those practices from a a range of different sources.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think you know being involved in uh, various uh, institutions as I have been throughout my career, I've I've been able to see you know what uh, kinds of questions are being asked at you know an elite research university or at a smaller liberal arts school or in an art program, and even within the various universities that I've been affiliated with, I've been uh, able to understand how different departments might ask questions or what kinds of research would be conducted. And I've been able to collaborate with people in different fields as well. So I think that it allows me to build a more holistic picture of the ways in which we might begin to create the kind of collaborative networks that are actually necessary to answer these qu- these questions. And what I learned a couple of summers ago, I was actually um, working as a ethnographic researcher with the Brooklyn Fashion Design Accelerator, observing one of their projects on smart textiles, the Textiles project. And one of the things that we learned that summer is that you really did need a number of different capabilities from fashion design to uh, materials engineering to industrial design and programming in order to create a single... A prototype in terms of a smart textile project. So, so design in the future has to be integrated with different kinds of capabilities and skill sets. And that's what people need to learn how to do is to work across disciplines.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that, that's certainly one of the things that I've learned from doing this podcast over the last few years and talking to people in a wide range of different fields is, you know, great things tend to happen when you get different worlds colliding with each other and discovering things about each other's industries, each other's practices, and then finding that they can be applied to, to new areas. But for you, what do you find most challenging about that? Because I mean, cl- clearly we know that when it works well, good things can happen, uh, but it's not always the easiest thing in, in the world to get you know people from different backgrounds collaborating together effectively, or to even realise that uh, there are rich opportunities to tap into if they can collaborate in that way. I mean, what do you find the biggest challenges when you're in a situation like that working in uh, you know, the fashion industry where maybe you don't have the same level of, of knowledge of that particular industry as you do of others? How do you overcome that? And how do you get people working together in an effective way?
1: Yeah, um, I mean, it, I think you're right that it is extremely challenging, um, mainly because while institutions, um, whether it's government funders or universities, are are constantly Claiming that they want to support, you know, cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary, and transdisciplinary kinds of projects, um, there's very little funding or even hiring that successfully supports that kind of work. So um, I would say in particular, if you look at hiring across universities, most university departments are still hiring people um, who are trained you know, in the field that they are special, specializing in. It's very difficult to have a hybrid profile or a hybrid background and find one's way into a traditional department. Um, so I would say, you know, hiring is still pretty conservative in terms of what, what kind of evidence does one have to show they can exceed succeed in that field? Um so, you know, in a humanities department, you know, it's publishing books and in, in a design department it might be design portfolios. And, you know, if someone is is exposed to a wide range of, of approaches, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they can always excel in, in, a, in, a, in a department that's focused singularly on that kind of evidence or that kind of scholarship or that kind of research. And I think that that's like the number one challenge is changing the organizational cultures in terms of the kind of uh, scholarship that's validated. Another level would be really the, the tenure system within universities. So, um, you know, people who might be doing more experimental work have difficulty perhaps getting tenure in a traditional um, discipline in terms of promoting cross-departmental collaboration. A lot of universities are uh, launching design, you know, launching competitions for uh, to bring faculty together. And I was involved in one of these projects um, at IIT. So the university sponsored uh, something called the Nair Prize with the support of the Nair family. And um, my team, uh, the driverless city project, was actually selected to win a one hundred thousand uh, dollar grant, and that supported a team of researchers for about a year. Um, You know, of course, the difficulty is that it takes it took about a year for the different disciplines to, I think, understand, you know, what what each one could contribute and how that topic around the driverless city, you know, could be shaped um, by their own perspective. And and while we certainly accomplished a lot in a year. You know, I do think that the, the really bridging the languages and the, the need to balance scholars who need to publish in order to get tenure with those who might want to do an exhibition or have other kinds of outputs I think all those things take negotiation and everyone only has a certain amount of time and energy and they have to really be wise about how they spend it and so I would just say you know also from a broader society perspective I there's a constant a constant emphasis on you know finding these new ways of learning and, and exploring interdisciplinary connection, but there's still not a lot of really sustained support. A one-year competition, unfortunately, can't really build different organizational cultures. And that's kind of, we need to move more towards these really building different ways of thinking and uh, supporting people who already think those ways.
0: What was the uh, objective with the Driverless City Project?
1: So the, the university objective, and, and um, we were one of three projects that were chosen um, in that year after... Out of fifty-three submissions, so we, you know, we were successful, of course, in, in gaining the funding. And the, and the goal of the university was really to fund, you know, high high-risk research that could have a large social impact. And our particular project was framed around looking at the ways in which urban. Uh, landscapes and architectures would be transformed, you know, not as a result of autonomous vehicles per se, but as a result of thinking about the potential for the dynamic use of space. Um, we did talk about human centeredness as a an important value. Um, so I think, you know, there's some interesting nuance and complexity there about wanting cities to still support human activities, but also where the autonomous vehicle becomes a new kind kind of actor, um, and that there are these new kinds of human and non-human relationships that are created with the introduction of, 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 of autonomous vehicles. And, and, you know, this is assuming that these technologies are are ever deployed. I think that's another great example of this concept of the socio-technical imaginary, in which there's just a lot of energy and funding going around to make this an imperative for society that we must we must adapt these technologies in order to progress. Um, and and it becomes you know a mantra and almost a truth. But at the same time, if you look you know at the critical scholarship, you know a lot of uh, technologies around uh, automation and robotics. have been in the works for decades and still never, never been deployed or never actually succeeded in their science and engineering ambitions. So so I think that's where, you know, a critical scholarship that can be generative can be useful for raising the kinds of questions we need to be asking about alternative possible futures.
0: Absolutely. I mean, there's always that underlying tension between uh, simply because it is possible to do something doesn't necessarily mean that that we should. And I I know from a conversation I had, uh, couple of months ago on the podcast with a lady at Energy in Berlin, where they're looking at various different um, questions around the interrelationships in what they describe as the machine economy. So the relationships that machines may have with other machines, the relationships that those machines may have with humans. It's starting to throw up all of these questions about if this future does emerge in which we have these autonomous actors of some kind playing a greater role in society than that. That really does change quite a few of the things that designers need to think about in terms of their role in designing those experiences and and those relationships between humans and, and whatever actors may emerge in the, the machine economy. But yeah, you know, thinking about what you learned on that that driverless city project, were their particular Issues that came out of it for you about, um, you know, the way in which humans may interrelate with those kind of autonomous vehicles, and and you know where there might be tension between the, those two different types of, of user in that system.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest learning for me from the project was the ways in which we might be able to use uh, speculative imaginations. Of future cities as a way of prompting a a discussion about these issues today. So the the project resulted in four speculative videos, um, and that process of screening those videos in many different cities. And I think on the one hand, there's a difficulty in helping audiences. Like for example, I presented to uh, professional real estate developers, and sometimes when you show these, you know, vignettes, which are more like a, you know. kind of a science fiction account meant to raise these questions it's taken as a, a prediction rather than a question and so part of the learning is really how can we create the right kinds of framing for those kind of speculative objects to support the kinds of questions that we want to ask and i think that that's you know that was one of the biggest learnings is is really just what kinds of design objects are going to be useful in supporting the conversation um, around emerging technologies. And, you know, with respect to the details of autonomous vehicles, it's like, sure, we learned a lot of things. I mean, we were able to actually visit the um, University of Michigan's MC the testbed, we were able to actually drive through the testbed that they're using to understand these technologies. And so that was a fascinating experience from the the perspective of, um, you know, the humans kind of driving in a, you know, non-autonomous vehicle through the autonomous vehicle testbed and just trying to understand in a way machine vision from that perspective. It's that this entire environment has been created just so a machine can drive through it.
0: Was that something you got to try out yourself?
1: We did, yeah. We we actually, you know, visited University of Michigan and and were able to drive through the test bed.
0: So, what did that feel like? You know, as a, as a human put into a machine's world, if you like, was that a strange sensation?
1: Um, yeah, absolutely. And I have been I've been giving a number of talks and also writing it up as a vignette in some of my academic papers. Um, and I I describe it as something of almost like a Western frontier town. Um, so because uh, in this M City testbed, it's a, a very shrunken version of a traditional urban plan. So all the streets are, are shorter, and um, the bridges are shorter. And but it does, it is populated with all of the familiar infrastructures that you see in cities. So like street lights and street signs, and all of that material was actually donated to the project. Um, and The street signs are deliberately scratched so that the autonomous vehicles can, um, you know, they can test on whether or not the vehicle is able to actually read the sign in a sort of typical normal kind of human condition where it might have gotten scratched um, due to bad weather. And then there's actually a facade uh, printed onto, you know, a not a, not a full building, but just a building facade. Is sort of hung as part of the, the scenery. So, you know, all in all, that particular testbed is testing networked and connected cars. So they're looking at whether or not the wireless signals can get through, you know, these various infrastructures that they built and, and whether it can navigate on this, this particular testbed. And as far as I understand, the the state of Michigan is now building a testbed that's 10 times the size of, of that one um, in order to continue this kind of research. So essentially, the testing of autonomous vehicles itself becomes an economic development strategy for the state. So if you can, you know, get companies to kind of pay to contribute um, to participate in these test beds. And scholars um, such as Orit Halpern have written about this idea of test bed urbanism where every city becomes a test bed. And I think there's some great examples, of course, around the world right now, with for example, sidewalk labs attempting to to build that kind of a, a neighborhood from the internet up in Toronto and Amazon, you know, had ambitions to, I think, test some of their logistics and delivery systems in New York um, and unfortunately, ha- you know, or fortunately has has just pulled out of the New York City project. You know, on the one hand, I think it's, uh, you know, on the one hand, I was actually surprised to hear that they pulled out. I, I... I think that the ways in which governments believe that they have to give these tax breaks to companies in order to attract their business, you know, we need to kind of, we need to help cities understand the kinds of leverage that they do have when they're negotiating with tech companies. Um, And in this sense, I just think it was a sort of process gone wrong in which the communities and the the local government officials were not really actively involved in the negotiations.
0: Well, I guess it comes back to some of your earlier points about that the need for that symbiosis between those different uh, players in that scenario and if we are to get to a future which is useful for the people who are going to live in it then it probably requires all those different players to recognize that, that they need each other and they need to work together effectively to test out these things make sure they're safe for people make sure they're relevant to people and that that probably means collaborating in rather different ways from we've, we've done in the past yeah that's a great point uh, just going back a a little bit. I was very interested by what you're saying about the way in which some of these stories about the future are told because this is something that I've come up against more and more recently, particularly as we start to look at uh, technologies which are manifest in intangible ways. So if you start thinking about things like artificial reality, virtual reality, those kind of experiences where inherently it's quite difficult to tell realistic or meaningful stories about them using the mediums that we have today, I mean, even video, for instance, it's quite difficult often to portray the experience of being in a virtual reality system just using the traditional video that the, you know people know and love at the moment. And you know, I'm wondering if that's something which you've started to explore with your students as a set of skills for the future. You know, to think about new ways of telling those stories so that when they are tasked with putting across possibilities that may be some distance into the future how they might do that in a way which, as you say, isn't just seeming like a concrete prediction that they're putting in front of people, but rather something which sparks an effective conversation.
1: Absolutely. Um, I've seen a lot of that in my course on designing futures, and I've seen different forms and materials used to communicate these kinds of stories from, you know, three-dimensional prototypes to hand-drawn, you know, sketches, Um and I think that it's, it is really interesting to understand how the forms that are used can help to communicate the design. And I think that getting the tone right, getting the framing right, and getting the tone right are the critical aspects. Um, sometimes, um, and it's, it's really interesting that, you know, sometimes you can really push a certain idea really far. You can take an idea that's essentially very kind of techno-deterministic, like something like the singularity where, you know, there's actually a vision that humans will eventually, you know, upload themselves into machines. And you can actually push that in a really interesting um, direction. Um, And so while as a critical scholar and a social scientist, I would probably normally dissuade someone from, you know, running with uh, the singularity as the main theme of their project. I've actually seen projects that do it really well and actually absolutely do create the right framing and the right tone to allow, you know, the class or the, the, the group uh, to really think through some really interesting questions. So I think it is about, you know, moving away, I would say, from some of the very common uh, assumptions and understandings within human-centered design, even the color schemes, or even sometimes the music that is used to to introduce a certain concept in a traditional kind of human-centered design um, course, is not going to work well if what you're trying to do is provoke critical reflection about emerging technology and futures. So, really getting those things right um, and and thinking about the narrative and the storytelling is is a really big part of of some of the courses that I've been doing, and one of the exercises that I've used in the past is to, to look at common phrases about the future, such as the future is already here, it's just not evenly distributed, and have students look back at the history of some of these ideas of these concepts. And in order to really unpack where are some of these assumptions coming from? And why do we continue to use them? And, you know, and can we come up with more accurate and more uh, relevant ways of framing, you know, what futures is all about?
0: That's an interesting point. I mean, I guess there's always a temptation, particularly uh, when you're in the student phase of a, a career, to imagine that all of the things which are sort of new at that moment in time are somehow as significant as they have ever been, because that's What's new and exciting when you're going through that very influential phase of of your own career development? But as you say, often it can be quite useful to look back at other moments in history, other approaches where they felt like there was a big revolution going on to, to ground that and get people reflecting about, well, just how significant are these set of developments likely to be I mean I know you were also involved uh, in a project relating to Bauhaus and uh, you know the, the influences that, that that had I mean is that something which grounds the the approach that you have in the, the writing that you do in in the teaching that you do um yeah
1: absolutely I think that you know with the Bauhaus futures book project the intention was to really think about the origins of the design field and in particular of the school where I teach the um, IIT Institute of Design, um, which was founded by Laszlo Moholy-Nagy, um, you know, from the the German Bauhaus, and the school was known as the New Bauhaus. And so, this year for the hundredth anniversary of that movement, you know, I decided that it would be great to pull together an edited volume um, thinking about what, who were the new experimental practices of design today. And in particularly, we asked the question, what would keep the Bauhaus up at night if they were practicing today? Would they be experimenting with algorithms or with biotech or, you know, what, what would be experimental and why? Um, and so we were able to bring together about 25 chapters, um, with scholars and, um, designers from all over the world, you know, thinking about the relevance of the Bauhaus, but also, um, making that orientation towards the future trying to think of what would the future of de- design curriculum um, what should it look like and why and we in particular focused a lot on um, race and gender as as some of the sort of social justice oriented kind of conversations that are really absolutely necessary in the field of
0: design today well, what a fascinating thing to have the opportunity to work on i mean where do you start with something like that in terms of who you reach out to to ground each of those chapters you know did you go into it with a a list of of designers in mind, a list of collaborators in mind that you already wanted to talk to?
1: Well, I think part of it perhaps is exactly the fact that I've had sort of such a nomadic academic career and been able to meet people in lots of different fields. So I would say that we've got contributors from, you know, architecture departments and humanities uh, departments and media studies and design practitioners and artists. And um, so it it really is a diverse group. And we tried to focus on, of course, gender balance. As one aspect of the authorship, and you know, we we also tried to include global conversations. Um, you know about uh, the significance of the Bauhaus, and um, and we also included included extremely critical critiques of the Bauhaus that that sort of really point out the fact that women and people of color were just not included in this particular you know movement of design. And in fact, they were just deliberately excluded. And some sometimes the ways of excluding has to do with just what you call something. So if you call something craft rather than design, it tends to be very gendered towards female or if you look at practices of indigenous groups in um, various places around the world and, and sort of you demote it as maybe a, a non-modern practice, there are lots of ways that the language that we use to talk about the field of design implicitly excludes certain kinds of work. And, and so we wanted to make sure that those conversations were in the book.
0: It's seemingly sometimes uh... A thing where the significance of that language is not realized at the time. And yet, as you say, it can be a really powerful thing, something which introduces long term biases, particularly, I guess, going back to some of our our earlier conversation where you have different fields that are trying to collaborate with each other. Getting a a shared vocabulary established where people understand the significance of the terms within it is often one of the really key things to making sure that people from different backgrounds or different industries are able to collaborate together more effectively. So it's something, I guess, that you really have to go into with your eyes open when you're getting into a project like that.
1: That's right. And I think one of the things that I've been, um, in some sense, particularly critical about in the field of design is the ways in which we often use very colloquial language to talk about the design projects and the design processes. And what I've been trying to do is really you know build up a literacy about about the world about technology that that illustrates a critical perspective so even if you use the word community for example there are many, many different definitions of that term based on different kinds of scholarly approaches and, and different kinds of studies. And so, you know, I've been very particular wanting to communicate through my work and through the work I do with students that, that we should be very deliberate about the choices we make to choose language that really has a, a deeper meaning behind it and to really know those meanings and to work with those, those meanings rather than kind of an everyday colloquial language.
0: Do you ever give any thought to the, the significance of Bauhaus as a I guess, an iconic name and how that is sort of echoed down the ages and whether that's something which may happen again with a different institution, that there may be something which gains the same sort of significance in influencing the development of some of these different fields that we've been talking about as, as Bauhaus has had over the last century, or whether indeed that would be something to seek. You know, is that a a goal? Well, I
1: think what's interesting is that, and one of the, the arguments that we make in the introduction to the book, is that the Bauhaus, on the one hand, had this huge impact all over the world as kind of it represented modernism and the ability to make products that were for everyone. Um, and so it was a very universal approach and it's focused on simplicity and unity, sort of this forms follows function. And I think what's, what's interesting is that within the book, what we were able to see is that the Bauhaus was actually much more diverse than that, that particular reputation um, and that there were lots of other kinds of practices, um, in particular, for example, the Bauhaus weaving workshop where where many of the women um, Bauhauslers were working, um, you know, had different kind of approaches and they really were experimental in many ways and I think that some of their, their art-focused work got kind of lost in, you know, in the translation over to the United States. You know, I think that that some of the design traditions were, were glorified and some of the ex- really experimental art practices kind of faded away. Um, so, for example, Black Mountain College um, was was one of the the, the outposts um, of the new Bauhaus, but it actually no longer exists. So I think, I think on, uh, what we do need to do today is kind of reclaim those experimental and artistic approaches, and it's very difficult to do it in the current context because we've seen many institutions, universities, and others, you know, moving towards much more neoliberal approaches to education, arts funding getting cut constantly, and there just isn't the real appreciation of, you know, what the arts and the humanities and these truly experimental approaches can do for us as a society. Um, I think we're very much uh, currently living under the the paradigm of science and engineering and you know what Shoshana Zuboff's book calls surveillance capitalism where you know large tech companies have taken human experience and turned it into data that they can sell and profit from. So I think that you know today to, to be continually making the claim that artistic practice is a very valuable way of asking critical questions of society, finding ways to support that kind of work is is absolutely essential.
0: It sounds like a, a, you know important time to be producing a book like this. And let's hope it inspires some of those conversations about where institutions, where institutions collaborating with private organizations can go in the future and, and do that in, in a way which is true to the, the challenges that we're going to face. Yeah. So obviously the, the the book is something which clearly has been occupying a, a big part of your, your time over the last little while but one of the things which I always like to ask guests to come on the show and I think perhaps is especially relevant given the variety of things that you've had the opportunity to work on is there anything that you're looking forward to in the future that you haven't yet had the chance to uh, have a, a go at working on uh, are there things which um, you're eager to, uh, to work on as a dream project in the future
1: well I have a project Um, Coming up next year, I'll be going to the U.K. from January to March to Durham University to work on a, a project called Material Imaginations, um, along with two collaborators um, who've invited me there uh, to participate in this project. And and that one is really exciting because it's bringing together physics, social science, and art, and it's looking at how we can use uh, participatory design to, to think through questions around biotech and bacteria. And it's a very new area for me, but it, it brings, you know, new kinds of materiality to some of the questions that I've asked about digital technology. So I'm really excited to, to think through that particular project and go to Durham in, in um, early spring 2020. And, you know, other than that, I'll be, you know, doing a lot of writing in the next six months um, while I'm on sabbatical and, and working on a book project of my own. And I hope it will capture some of the conversations that we've had today.
0: Well, Laura, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to come and share all of that, with us on the the next podcast. Uh, And I I wish you all the best with the project in Durham next year. And do stay in touch and let us know how it goes. It'll be interesting to see what comes out of that one.
1: Thanks again uh, as well. And, you know, it's been really a pleasure speaking with you, Mark.
0: Right, so that is it for this edition of the mechs podcast i hope you enjoyed that conversation with laura and if you're interested in checking out any of the things that we talked about or that she's involved with do go and take a look at the show notes we put those up at mobileuserexperience.com in the podcast section uh, and you'll find all of the different things there with easy links to go and check them out The next episode is going to be out in two weeks time. So that will be on the 11th of April. And that one is with Lydia Oshelansky who is the design lead for growth opportunities at Spotify, uh, which I think should make for a a very interesting conversation. So if you're not already subscribed to the podcast, do add Mech's design talk in your favorite podcast player. So you get a notification when that comes out. Uh, And of course, we'll be uh, listing it at mobileuserexperience.com and also on the various Mech social feeds on LinkedIn or Twitter, where we're at Mech's feed. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye.